there has to be a story behind a country that everybody shares. And that story has to be someone everybody believes in. And it means that because you share the story, there, there is something that ties you all together, which is more important than what divides you. Welcome back to another episode of The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Just as a reminder, if you like what we're doing here and you appreciate these episodes, please like, subscribe, rate, and review. It's the best way to help us reach as many people as possible, and then we can keep doing this every single week. What we do here, if you're new, is we look at the forces that make and break empires while asking what's in store for the future. And this week, we turn our attention to Martin Wolf. He's the chief economic commentator at the Financial Times. He's been there many years. He's also writing a book that's near and dear to him about what are the forces affecting democracies currently and what's their future hold with the rise of autocracy. And that's where we're going to turn our attention to today. Martin Wolf is the perfect person to talk to about these topics. I hope you get as much out of this as I did. Martin, thanks for taking time out of day to speak with me today. Pleasure. I'm sure it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So let, let's just jump right in. What is the most important dynamic that you're noticing in the world right now? There are so many. I mean, we, <laughs> we are having such a perfect storm of big events. Oh my goodness, well, I we suppose um, there are three really big ones going on at the same time. Um, well, maybe even four. Well, the first, obviously, is the emergence and reinforcement of a new superpower conflict, which hmm. will shape geopolitics and geoeconomics. And it is new uh, on many dimensions, and I think much more significant than the old Cold War. The second is the faltering attempt, but growing realization that we face a really huge um, challenge in managing um, the climate crisis. This mm. is obviously a very big and powerful issue. The, the third is uh, um, the transformation of politics, and in particular, the rise of authoritarianism, predominantly right-wing authoritarianism around the world, but noticeably also in uh, high-income countries with all the characteristics or many of the characteristics we're familiar with uh, from the past. And finally, I think it's probably important to stress, we are clearly in the grip of an ongoing and profound series of technological transformations. Um, one well established in the creation of a completely new systems for um, media operation. Um, social media continue to transform our lives. And related to that, very powerfully related to that, in fact, the, um, the artificial intelligence revolution. So we are, I think, in, and I'm sure there are other things, but I think the, I could list lots more, but these are four enormous 
uh, transformations that are going on at the same time. They're clearly related, but also to some extent uh, independent. And that makes understanding the world and responding to its challenges particularly severe. Yeah, it's certainly a time for nuance in, in all these big discussions. And we got an hour, so I'm sure we're going to solve all four of these right now. Um, oh, but that, <laughs> and that's a great outline. Um, I'd love to touch on a few of these. I'm sure we, we can't even dive into everything. But recently I saw that, that you wrote, um, and, I, and I just want to hear, how does this fit into these big forces we just talked about? Biden's economic programs, you've said, are the most consequential gamble any Democratic leader has taken in your lifetime. Um, and that's a pretty substantial statement. So can you unpack that a little bit for us and then also perhaps fit it into these uh, these big picture dynamics going on? Yes, I'd be very happy to do so. This is the way I've been thinking about it. So the last great crisis period in which there were multiple crises, some of sim mm -hmm. similar, the emergence of communism, the emergence of fascism, the Great Depression, all these came together in the early 30s. And um, it turned out that a decisive moment in uh, um, what turned out in, out in the end to the, the resolution of these multiple crises, so it took... Mm. Um, almost one and a half decades was the election of of Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt, and he wanted to transform the economics and so the politics of the United States. Um, obviously, the most important country in the world in terms of power potential at that time. Um, to re-establish the credibility of democracy, which was very much in question, and also of a new way of doing the economy, which was still essentially a market economy, but one that was seen by the great mass of the people as working for them, which pretty obviously was an idea that was fading almost everywhere, including even the mm -hmm. US. And, and through many twists and turns and problems and failures, I think it would be fair to say he was successful. Now, I think that the... What I meant was in respond in my comment on Biden's program and how consequential it is, is that I think it's consequential in that way. Um, his challenge is to reestablish the credibility of democracy, to reestablish the credibility of government and its central role in managing a modern economy and making it work for the whole of society, which is sort of, if you like, FDR's challenge in the modern world, by re-establishing a working and credible democracy in the US and in other democratic countries, making it fit to respond to the challenges of authoritarianism, both domestically and externally, um, including having the self-confidence to deal with China in a rational way, which nonetheless upholds our values. And I think only in this way, too, can we begin to tame some of the powerful forces of technology and modern capitalism, which are clearly destabilizing us. So it seems to me that if we look back on the last 20 years or so, 
we have been failing, and the US has particularly been failing, and given its central role, its scale, and its historic role, in managing all this. Um, you know, we, we've stumbled from one crisis and calamity to another with a population that is increasingly disenchanted, angry, uh, frustrated, resentful, and at war with itself. Um, so achieving success in these tasks, as I've laid them out, um, I think unbelievably difficult and even unlikely, is a necessary condition for success. And mm. in that respect, um, I regard this as enormously consequential. And if he fails, um, I think it's really quite frightening to think of where the US goes, what sort of government it will have, what sort of country it will be, what sort of role it will play in the world, and um, therefore um, whether and how um, we, and by we I mean both the world and citizens of de democratic countries in particular, will continue with our lives. To me, it sounds like you're framing it, the stakes are quite high. And, and Biden knows that. And so, some of us definitely feel that. And, you know, when I think about an institution uh, from a position of stability and power, they don't need to make these high stakes all or nothing bets. Is it, is it accurate to read the situation like that? kind of a Hail Mary is almost is almost too extreme, but something along those lines. Yes, I think that's why I make the parallel with the 30s, which seem mm. all periods are different and all historic yeah. parallels are flawed. But it's one of the things we can anchor ourselves in. Mm -hmm. It seems to me uh, that in the scale and complexity of the challenges, which are in some respects existential for us, um, Climate change may actually be so um, for many of us, for well, not me, my children, grandchildren. Um, it should be seen as we're, we're pursuing politics against uh, a background that determines costs of failure of the sort of scale, possibly even bigger, that we saw in the 30s. And that wasn't the case since then. I never felt mm -hmm. in my life... Um, well, I was quite aware, um, or I never, I rarely felt in my life that we were facing a challenge of this proportion. And when I did feel it, it was just one of them. So, for example, I remember fairly well the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was 16 at the time, so old enough to be aware that if this went wrong, we were going to have nuclear war. That seemed pretty scary. Uh, yeah. Though it turned out to, actually, I was underestimating how close it was. I sort of assumed they wouldn't do anything so stupid. But it was one event. Uh, um, the uh, the 70s with the two oil shocks and the inflation so, was also very disturbing and destabilizing. But it was, um, it was on its own to some de degree. One didn't then feel um, uh, so many challenges at the same time. So I think in terms of the array of challenges and their seriousness and um, significance. Uh, we are in a period which hasn't been like this um, uh, since the Second World War ended. Obviously, the war itself, if it had gone the other way, 
uh, would have been equally decisive. I wasn't alive at the time. My father tells me he never doubted that the West would win. And certainly when the US was engaged in the war, became engaged, that seems pretty plausible. So, yeah, I think this is, a, we are actually living, maybe a great danger for someone, particularly someone who's oldish, to think now, you know, but I, yeah. it's almost the opposite. I don't think, I have never thought that quite that now is the moment in the way that I think now. And I, and, uh, and I've lived through a lot of moments. So just, it is a, I think this is a really big moment in terms of what we confront and the penalties mm -hmm. and dangers of um, doing it wrong. It's real interesting. I wonder when I think about, do we get this? Do we get it as, as a collective? And on one hand, I feel like, no, we, on the most part, we don't understand how high the stakes are. But another part, it feels like we do because the moralizing and the culture wars are so passionate and so intense. It's, so, it's almost this dichotomy of, on one hand, everyone feels it, whether they could put words to it or explain why they feel or observe the things they observe. But on the other hand, it, everyone's fighting for their own little piece of something instead of this collective vision of we need to come back together as a whole. How, how do you think about that when this you know, idea of do we, do we get it? Do we understand the stakes are so high? I think it's pretty clear, I think, that we don't get it, or at least we don't get it in a way that is useful. Hmm. Um, we are divided more than we unite it. And, um, and that is worse. So if we take the view, which I think is um, the right one, it's a realistic view, that in the end, state power is, is a central factor. Human beings are organized in hierarchical structures called states and that's where most of the organized power is um, obviously there are very important other actors but but leadership comes from political processes and always has as it did in the 30s for good and ill then the problem and certainly the US is the central player um, in this or a central player then one pretty obvious difference is that for various reasons, um, the, the reformers of the 30s um, had an overwhelming or obtained an overwhelmingly dominant political position. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, though he made terrible mistakes and important mistakes and ran into significant opposition, the FDR controlled Congress um, and the presidency for famously four terms. Uh, he um, he had the capacity to act. I mean, in fact, that was rather a unique period. Um, um, by and large, well, the U.S. has been quite successful in in uh, uh, dividing powers, but at that crucial moment. Um, as was the case for different reasons during the Civil War. Um, leadership was in the hands of somebody who knew how to act and was given the capacity to do so. Now, our situation now is very, very different. As you yourself have indicated, just looking at it from outside, as you indicate, the US is deeply divided politically, socially, culturally, 
uh, in different ways economically too, um, also in race and gender terms, um, above all it seems to me race. And there is no unifying consensus, um, no unifying, uh, and therefore no unifying political force. I mean, Biden's problem is that he is, uh, has many problems, but he's confronting a deeply, uh, an almost perfectly divided Congress with very limited capacity to act. Um, the, um, that's very, very different and obviously far, far worse because reaching a consensus position on almost anything is, it, for reasons you know, at least as well as I do, almost impossible. That's that's much, that's much um, worse. The, I think there are other respects which are much better. I think the enemies we have among countries, or that can be identified as enemies, are um, far more manageable in the sense that they can be dealt with than um, Hitler or Stalin. You know, we're not facing people like that. Um, you know, Xi Jinping is not even Mao. Uh, so um, I think international relations are relatively handle handleable compared to the what must have looked horrendous in the 30s. Uh, but the domestic politics look terrible. And I think some of the challenges we confront COVID is rather different, I think, manageable. But climate is the sort of challenge which we've never confronted before as a species and requires a sort of response over so many decades with such unanimity that it seems somehow inconceivable. So um, if we compare it ourselves now with where we were, in some respects, we're in a better position, but in some quite important respects, uh, in terms of the challenges and our ability to coordinate ourselves, we are in a worse shape. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of those divisions, I'd like to connect it to the elections we've had and looking forward to, um, well, 2024 especially. And you've, you've pointed out in some articles and many other commentators and writers have done so as well, that there's a complete split between belief in whether voter fraud has occurred uh, whether it contributed to Trump's loss. And and so that, of course, defines, well, the, the division, but also the right. And then I'd like to also point out, even 2016, you know, it doesn't matter where you fall on that. Or it's almost irregardless of the truth, because in a post-truth world, it's what I believe is the truth as opposed to what is right. And so the left believes that uh, Russia and China interfered with the election. So you have almost two parties now that are primed to distrust election results. And, and you've also written that both groups feel that to subvert elections is fine as long as it puts the right person in power. And so looking forward, what are our baseline expectations for, say, the next election that we should have as, as realistic? Well, I think you're asking a really, really big question um, it's a big one. <laughs> and, and, and a smaller one. I mean, the really big question is, and I'm just completing a book on this, um, so I've got rather deep into it. Um, can democracy work in current circumstances mm -hmm. at all? 
Now, the, you know, if you read, and I've spent a lot of time reading people who study democracy deeply and are very committed to it as an idea, they all sort of agree, which is pretty obvious, that a necessary condition for having a democracy, something that is a legitimate democracy in which voters choose their leaders, um, is that whatever the rules are, um, the elections are fair in the sense that every legitimate vote that every vote that is cast legitimately is counted legitimately and according to the agreed rules and the person or people who win the most votes win and um, both sides accept that the winners are the legitimate holders of whatever office they won. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the struggle. You know, then there's a new struggle, which is uh, you know, over legislation and uh, the next election, because the elections go on. All that is understood. But that determines who's the next senator, who's the next Congress person, who is the next president. Uh, or prime minister or whatever. That's the process. And then there are meta requirements for this, for these elections to be fair. Obviously, you need a process that guarantees votes are cast fairly and protected and counted fairly. And that in the campaigning, people can campaign freely for the candidate they choose and that there's freedom of opinion and freedom of expression, freedom of argument. All these are, if you like, the meta norms of democracy. Now, I think it would be fair to say that when parties or a party denies the outcome of the election, is convinced or has convinced most of its supporters that the election outcomes were fraudulent, does so, as far as I can see, without any evidence, uh, insist upon it and maintains that position, then these elections have, the electoral process has been delegitimized and the holders of office are no longer held to be legitimate. And the outcome of elections are only held to be legitimate if the party concerned wins. And in that situation, I would say, democracy is essentially at its death's door. Um, uh, it's not clear to me how you can continue with elections um, uh, under those uh, circumstances and hope to, to create in the process uh, legitimate authority, which is after all mm -hmm. what elections are designed to do. So I, th I regard this as, as sort of a mortal blow, mortal attack on the democratic process itself. And what is particularly significant is I can't imagine what process or rules could be created that will re-establish the necessary confidence and trust. Because the strong impression one gets is that people feel, well, if we don't win, it is illegitimate. That's, that means, that is the, the core uh, authoritarian principle. We are entitled to rule whatever people think, because we're entitled to rule. That's because we are we are us and we are entitled to rule. End of story. That's an authoritarian position, an autocratic position. And that, I think, was what this process was about. So um, it was clear that Mr. Trump was going to argue this. 
but it wasn't clear what would happen if he denied the validity of the election after when he when he afterwards and the courts and the officials concerned upheld the basic democratic norms all of which seemed very good so i was a in sort of December, early January, I was rather confident that America was coming through, at least what seemed to me to be a mortal attack. And then, of course, there was January 6th. And more important, there was the, the aftermath of January the 6th mm-hmm. in terms of the decision of the party and its supporters that Trump's, Mr. Trump's claims were correct. And therefore, they aligned themselves fully with the stolen election hypothesis, which to my mind is sort of a modern version of the stab-in-the-back hypothesis that the German right used throughout the 20s to justify overthrowing the outcome of the First World War and the peace treaty. Um, I don't know how a country goes from here. Um, I can't see any way it goes from here which which maintains uh, a functioning democracy. And I've been surprised at how this completely obvious point, because it's been so obvious from experience of so many countries around the world is not understood and accepted by so many people in the US. That's exactly my next question is I don't even know it's so it's so difficult right because I don't know the pulse of the entire US no one can possibly exactly know that but we try and it certainly feels like people are not interested in this discussion. And that's just from my perspective, one person over here. But that's what I want to ask you is, do you think people are even interested in discussing this topic? And then secondly, if not, why? Well, there are people who are interested in discussing it, but they always come over because inevitably a shrill and doom mongers and people don't want to hear that stuff. And they're kind of always there. And... Well, there are some new people whom I rather very much respect, um, writers who are bringing this up pretty regularly, like David Frum and Anne Applebaum in The Atlantic. Um, but obviously this is minority writing for the, for, for mm-hmm. the egghead minority. Um, most people don't want to hear it. Um, and I suppose there are two, there may be two things going on. First, people are intensely invested in their tribe, their, the people they support, their tribe and their tribal leader. And they don't understand the way, how the tribe behaves within a political context um, actually determines the political context itself. It's not just about who wins, but what you can win. Uh, and um, and they dev- don't understand um, the, the the whole system under which they have lived. Um, their ancestors have lived um, is in the balance in these in such a situation because that's what democratic elections are about. And then the second part, which links with that, is a perfectly natural human feeling that um, sort of mixture, things cannot change that much. We can't 
you know, the country can't be transformed in so profound a way as people worry. It won't be so bad. Um, in some way, we are special and unique, which is, of course, true for most countries, certainly true for the US. And so in the end, it's not really going to make much difference. And I mean, that's actually an interesting proposition. Um, if the US moved into a situation in which um, you had uh, rulers who was in large, who were in important respects operated um, without constraint and who could manipulate elections effectively at will and could, um, but they wouldn't be able to do anything because there are some very important um, rules, norms, bulwarks against this. Would this make a huge difference to how most people live their lives? Possibly not. But it would be, nonetheless, from a domestic and even more global point of view, a rather profound transformation. It would feel a bit more like some of the um, autocratic regimes we see around the world, where there are still elections, where the government sort of controls, influence, guides a lot of the media, um, where it pressures business people to do what it wants them to do and and punishes business people who um, others who 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 are this seen as disagreeable and most people are unaffected by this they go on living their lives it's it is a soft form of authoritarianism it's not like living in the old uh, um, communist and the old totalitarian systems we're developing a new form of soft authoritarianism but it's still it's not working democracy well, the irony of that is there's, and you kind of touched on it, one of the arguments is almost this self-correcting that, well, we couldn't possibly actually go there because America is unique and special. And in the past and in the future, we'll always self-correct towards that more free, that more democratic outcome. And I, I think the irony of that is if that, if, if that is such a strong belief, that you actually cling to that, disregarding obvious facts that we're seeing, it weakens the self-correcting mechanisms. <laughs> and and then on top of that, you kind of overlay this this idea of the um, what is often called the myth of progress that we're constantly progressing towards a better and better future, and so therefore it's not possible to regress towards or whatever term you want to use towards a certain. Um, um, authoritarian or autocratic or governance system that is seen as less progressive and it's in the past is behind us. Do you, do you think that that idea of myth of progress, I mean, it's probably such a nuanced thing, but do you think that plays a part in it as well or? Yes. I'm, I'm, I don't fully understand all aspects of it, but first of all, I do agree. I would, with your sort of first point, what, it's what I think of as complacency or the reality of the now, uh, if mm -hmm. you like. It, it's quite difficult for people to imagine um, a world different from the one they're familiar with, you know, particularly if you've got a large, relatively isolated, powerful country which uh, has been proceeding in a certain way. The idea that this could actually change in quite profound ways is... Um, 
difficult to grasp. Uh, and uh, I think many people find it very um, difficult to imagine that this could happen um, for various reasons to do with, I'm European, um, my parents were refugees from Nazi, Nazi Europe. Um, I'm aware of all the revolutions and chaos and destruction in Europe in the first half of the 20th century and in other countries thereafter. I sort of have a very powerful sense of the fragility of order, the fragility of civilization, the ease with which it can be subverted. Um, and that's to some degree personal. I can perfectly well understand that most people won't feel this. And uh, it's quite possible that large changes could occur without their really noticing um, if they weren't very actively involved in certain aspects of life, like um, uh, politics itself. So the this complacency seems to me very important. It also requires, and this is closely related, to think that some things can be different from what you're familiar with. You need imagination and you need, I think, to have sort of read some stuff and thought about some stuff or at least know some other places of travel to, to know that, that. And many people haven't. I'm interested in your idea of the myth of progress. Um, it was, um, and sort of, it's something I would like to believe. And there is a respect in which it's it's obvious. So I I've just been writing a book on democracy and capitalism, how they relate. And if you look at sort of standard measures of democracy, there are some good databases, American, of course, uh, on democracy. And and what they show is that over the last 200 years, the number of regimes in the world, the proportion regimes in the world, which are democratic in some of the respects we discussed earlier, has increased dramatically, but it hasn't re increased consistently, uh, or certainly not at a consistent rate, and there have been important read periods of backsliding. The 30s was one. Um, the proportion of regimes that were democratic was higher in 1930 than it was in 1940. No great surprise about that. So there can clearly be backsliding within a story of improvement. Um, over the last half century, there are far more countries became free, so there are far more countries than before because of the decolonization of empires. And, and in the last 30 years, far more of them became democratic. So well over half the regimes of the world, so well over 100, became at least notionally democratic by the early uh, 21st century. So that's progress. You know, that, that's living proof of it. And it mm -hmm. meant something if you think about what regimes were like in 1800, um, autocratic, monarchical, or oligarchic. Now, so I wouldn't suggest for a moment that the reversals we're experiencing now and that are threatened now would be irreversible reversals. It may well be that at some point um, the failure of autocratic regimes will lead to their overthrow and reversal 
We can't, I don't think any of us can predict that. But I do think the fact that um, we're talking about this, this assault on the electoral process as such in the US, which is the most powerful democracy by far, and not the biggest, I suppose, uh, India is bigger and is still basically dem democratic or to some degree. Um, but the US is so powerful and also was, again, for all the faults and mistakes and all the rest of it, crimes, the country that got democracy through the 30s and thereafter. Um, if that becomes essentially and no longer a democratic state committed to standard democratic norms of the type that I've described, um, then that I think is a very, very significant moment. How And it would have a very significant effect on the way autocrats and democracies behave around the world, without a doubt. Uh, the former would feel emboldened and the latter would feel beleaguered. But I think the big point uh, it, I would agree with you. Well, it's, this isn't forever, not necessarily, who knows. But uh, one can't fight or get involved in forever wars. I can't solve the problems of forever. I can only confront the problems now, which is sort of what I do with my writing. And right now, um, that will be quite a significant blow. But I agree, nothing is necessarily forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are solid points. And I like what you said earlier as well about, well, I'd summarize it as in periods of instability, folks are not exactly looking for new ways of thinking that are going to destabilize what already feels unstable in the sense of why are people perhaps less interested in these discussions? Because it, it, it can be a destabilizing topic to try to rethink some narratives that may or may not be accurate. And, um, you, you know, taking that further into, you've written a lot about recently the rise of autocracy globally. Can you fit that a little into the economic story and perhaps, or, or I'll just give it to you kind of open-ended. Why are we seeing, uh, a rise of, more and more autocracy globally. Yeah, I think that's, in a way, the most difficult um, question. Um, and I think the stories are complicated. In many cases, uh, it is possible, but maybe too easy to identify groups, important groups, who feel um, that they have been economically disadvantaged or lost economic position and or experienced economic crises and um, they want the restoration of economic order and prosperity and economic optimism. So I think, and that's not just true in the developed world, it's, you know, that's certainly true, I think, in Turkey, before Erdogan got into power, basically 
the secular politicians lost all credibility in the way they managed the economy. In uh, um, Similarly with the botched Russian transition, um, that's pretty clearly the case. The economic, the financial crisis of 2007 to nine shook countries almost everywhere and shook politics almost everywhere. Um, Bolsonaro wouldn't have come to power in Brazil. I think if the um, the previous government and the ruling elite hadn't made such a mess of things um, so spectacularly in recent years. So it's usually possible to identify economic factors. Um, rising inequality, particularly, and insecurity for the people in the middle and bottom, I think, has been, in most cases, really quite a significant element. And that allows an authoritarian leader to come along and say, look, I'm going to be on your side, an authoritarian demagogue, they're all demagogues, I'm going to be on your side against established elites uh, who are all crooks. And it sounds like a nice story, it usually isn't true. I mean, usually they're actually on the side <laughs> of elites. But that doesn't matter, it sounds a nice story and it works. So I think at that level there is an economic thing. But there are other things often going on. Um, a sense, the right attracts people in the middle and bottom because they feel that established ways of life and their position associated with established patterns of life and culture are under attack. And um, so there's often a culture war element. You can see this again and again in Turkey. It was over Islam and the conservative in, in India, a central element has been Hindu pride in the sense that the Hindus have been um, despised by secular people and other and minorities, particularly Muslims. Um, there's often a backlash against quote unquote progressive cultural movements. So that's often an element too. There's this cultural uh, dimension which is aligned and allied with the um, this grievance over economic forces. And I think we can see that in most countries um, where um, populist demagogic would-be autocratic forces have come into power. And the specifics vary. What there has to be alongside those elements, and I tend to think economics has been particularly important in, in established democracies like ours, there has to be a talented um, populist political entrepreneur, if you like, who can play these tunes well. The tunes of resentment, usually nostalgia, um, often um, cultural and racial division to win uh, a majority or at least a very large minority and the arguments that they've been dispossessed, they are the real people who politics should serve, the others aren't the real people. And if they put their absolute trust in this leader, he, and I think it's always been a he, interestingly, these sort of leaders have always, pretty well always been men, will, um, if they give them all the power necessary, be able to solve all their problems and 
Make American Great Again, or um, which is such a wonderful example of the the nostalgic slogan, which is basically a statement: "You love the 1950s, and I'll bring it back." Um, so it's a complicated movement, but there has to be something that creates a large, anxious, economically and culturally anxious and worried group. Uh, in the middle to lower middle of society, not at the absolute bottom, because that's what they where they fear going, but it's not where they are. Um, and these people um, need to be told by a talented leader that some identifiable group of outsiders, foreigners, maybe China or um, in America, you know, um, um, black people or African-Americans or um, university graduates, whoever it might be, they're the cause of all this or, or the, the government. Um, that's the politics of it. That, the, the basic politics seem to recover, recur throughout human history. Plato's already writing about this in the 5th century BC, but we've seen a lot of it recently. And for that to happen, the politics of in inclusion have to have broken down. Hmm. People have to, must no longer feel they're all part of one thing economically. And I think here, not a universal common factor is some of the consequences of the market liberalization we saw in the 80s, 90s and 2000s, which did break down a lot of the bonds and in the process damaged a lot of the security people, along with ineluctable economic changes. And the one I identify as particularly important for the developed world is deindustrialization, the collapse of industry as a source of employment for so many non-university educated people, particularly men. So it's a complicated thing. What brings them together is a lot of dissatisfaction on the one hand, and a really talented entrepreneur on another, on the other. Yeah, fascinating. I'm certainly hearing elements of almost there's this collective narrative we're all unite under, and then there needs to be a large enough segment that for whatever reason has been removed or slipped out. And that almost makes sense in, in the specific... Um, example of the U.S. of everyone's fighting for what they believe is the most most true version of America. No one's saying like, I want to be Mexico or I want to be Canada or I want to be a different country. It's, it's we need to get us back to the true ideals of America and some point to this and some point to that because it, it kind of speaks what you're saying. We're almost trying to get back to this unified vision. We just disagree on what that vision is very, very passionately. And and you mentioned culture wars. And so, you know, we got to let you go here in a second. So just the last question here is how, what are those fundamental drivers of these culture wars? Is it, is it simply that as well? Or are there kind of a few different things going on? Well, I, th I think you I like the way you put it, the way I thought about it is there has to be a story behind a country that everybody shares. And that story has to be someone everybody believes in. 
And it means that because you share the story, there, there is something that ties you all together, which is more important than what divides you. And if you feel that, then the um, you can live with the results of elections, to take the example we started off. You, know, you feel, okay, the Republicans won this time, but they're patriotic Americans, and I'm a patriotic American, they're a legitimate government, that's fine. Let them govern and we'll get our chance later, and vice versa. And the reason is that what unites you in the end is more important than what divides you. And that's quite mm -hmm. a trick to pull off, and it's obviously more <laughs> difficult the more heterogeneous a society is. Um, so you have to emphasize the story of what it means to be an American. And America has historically been quite good at this, with obviously the radical ex and crucial exception of race. Um, uh, although even then, there have been moments when it looked as though a story could be developed and I think Martin Luther King was a genius in this respect, in trying to create a story which was inclusive, right? uh, not a story that was exclusive. But democracy is an inclusive system in the sense it basically says, for it to work, we are all citizens of one republic, and we, we share this bond of citizenship with all other citizens, and we have a common historical story about our past, how we do things today, and how, where we're going. And great American politicians have always tried to appeal to this. Now, then you come along with the cultural question, and I think the economic question. So if you get a society in which the gap between the wealthy and the, the majority gets too big, whatever too big is, the plutocracy starts living an entirely separate existence. They're not part of the citizen of the community there they're not really citizens they're overlords there's something else right it's not really compatible i think with a democratic order it's compatible with plutocracy which is a different system altogether as aristotle told us so wealth is a very powerful um solvent of these bonds and different it's clear unfortunately racial identity can be uh and it's pretty clear cultural values can be, you know, if you think that the cultural values of your political opponents, the way they live in terms of issues like, I'm just giving you an example, religion, obviously, um, 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 sexual behavior, um, gender identity, race, that's, uh, I'm seeing that as a cultural thing, which of course it really is. If you see those things as such decisive differences that you cannot imagine the people who hold these other identities and, and value other behaviors as anything other than evil, then they can't be citizens. They break you apart. And there is a certain sort of political entrepreneur who will say, well, us lot, whoever they are, defined in one of these ways, religious, race, uh, culture, a mixture of them all. Um, um, we are the real people. We do things the right way. The conservatives obviously the way we used to do them. Um, and the others are not the real people. They shouldn't have any political rights at all. Um, and that way you end up, let's be blunt, with fascism. 
And this is where these elements enter into it. And, you know, to take, you know, one's not supposed to do this, but we can't avoid using historical examples. The most extreme example of this, obviously, in world history was Hitler. So these are very dangerous tunes to play, but they emerge quite naturally if the things that bind people together, the story that they tell themselves about who they are, cannot be written in such a way as to embrace essentially everybody in society. When I first visited the States, which is back in the 60s, I felt they had a pretty good story with the terrible exception of race. And then they had the huge upheavals of the civil rights struggle. And many people like me, outsiders, looked at this and said, well, it looks to me as though the US has is now well on the way to fixing its last great problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore, they can now tell an inclusive story about them all, what the values they stand on, individualism, freedom, um, but also coming together through effective uh, governance arrangements at all these various different levels um, in a relatively modern state. That's looked like the story. And the moment that I felt this was the moment, in fact, in which that story started to crumble. It's a long-term process, but it seems to me to have happened. In, in, in uh, other countries, the, the really big thing, I think, which countries like England, France and so forth, which have been historically, uh, many other dimensions, but have been historically monoethnic, or have seen themselves as monoethnic. These were countries of immigration, not immigration. Um, it's been really hard to retell the story in a way that mm-hmm. includes, as it must, all the new citizens. I'm actually modestly optimistic, may turn out to be fantastically stupid, that the English will manage that. But but the because they are sort of, they, for various reasons, I mean, one way you can see that is we've got so many leading politicians who are South Asians and Africans. I mean, that's quite extraordinary. Um, but the... Uh, the difficulty is we can't tell a national story which includes Europe. So we broke with Europe, and that was tragic. Um, And it's not clear we can tell a national story that includes Scotland, so the country may break up. But this is what this is about. Politics involves to work. There has to be a story that unites citizens. Some values, a story. It's not just processes. And I do fear now, when I look at what Trump has done, and I look at the way people have responded to his lies and the way the process is working. I just wonder whether this story, this American story, really works anymore. And I know that a lot of my American friends who are very middle of the road people, you know, former Republicans, most of my Republican friends are now former Republicans and, uh, and Democrats. They're all very worried about this. And the last word on this is politics is about telling stories and great politicians tell good stories. So you need politics is an active thing. It's not just there. It's not just structure. It needs leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One of the things FDR was remarkable at was telling stories that people would buy. And the stories were, by and large, with some horrible exceptions, um, Japanese internment, uh, the the race issue, which he put to one side for tactical reasons, but he basically told good stories uh, about the country, and and it, you need leaders who will do this, 
if you have successful demagogues, you, their whole business is telling stories that divide people. That's what they do. That's why they're so dangerous. That we will leave right there. Like, I don't even know how to wrap this up. Been such a good discussion. Um, a cool warning. And also, you've um, mentioned your book a few times. So is that something we can expect in the next year or something? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm basically working through the edits. It's called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Don't think I have a very cheerful end, but basically it's asking the question <laughs> of why democracy, which seemed to be so dominant and successful and triumphant 30 years ago with the fall mm. of the Soviet Union. We, I believe that, you know, we had won in some sense. Well, that doesn't look very right anymore. So I was, the book is out. Well, why did this happen? Well, put me on high on the list for uh, pre-sales. I mean, that's, you know, super similar to what we're doing here. And that's, I think, why you know, we spoke back in March and I reached out again because you are able to talk about these subjects really well. And um, I'm going to have to let you go. I heard your next appointment show up. Your granddaughter, you're teaching how to bike today. So, um, Martin, thank you so much for um, coming on and sharing all your thoughts. And uh, good luck teaching, uh, teaching some balancing skills later. It was a great pleasure. You asked some wonderful questions and I know I went on too long, but I really enjoyed no. it. <laughs> fabulous all right have a great day and that's a wrap if you like what we do here make sure to like subscribe rate and review it's the best way to help us get our content out to the most people and that way we can keep doing this every week so we look forward to seeing you next time and thanks again